0: The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, Episode 55, In the Reeds. It feels strange to be leaving soon. This is the only world I remember, even though it was never really home, Jack said. He looked out over the lake through the trees where Diar had parked their caravan. His uncle was frying freshly caught trout for dinner. It was nearing twilight, the time of day that Jack had always felt most grounded and at peace, even though, or maybe because, the different realms were closest together at this hour you'll soon remember once you're back fairy hasn't forgotten you nor anyone in it and your mother is well settled on the borders you have to come visit first thing my everlasting life isn't worth a tin shilling if you don't diarmid said ruefully a look of apprehension on his face that was only partly feigned "'For what my help was worth, I'm glad I got to help save the world,' Jack continued. "'But I'll miss Lucas and Isabel. "'They can come visit you and you can see them. "'The Ever-Living and their Blessed and Beloved can travel freely between the realms,' Diarmid said. "'I expect they'll be busy,' Jack replied. "'Not so busy they can't call on a true companion now and again,' Diar smiled. "'I'll take you to your mother.' "'But you may find someone has been waiting for you, too. "'You may not long be the lonely rover.' "'All this time?' "'I doubt that,' Jack shook his head. "'You're probably harder to forget than you know. "'Your tales run through the blood and bones of Scotland, "'and that lot can consign just about anything to oblivion, "'given sufficient whiskey, words, and a slide rule. "'What?' When so-minded, D'Armond explained, the Scots can either drink something under the table, argue it to death, or engineer it into submission. Thomas the Rhymer has escaped all those fates. I see, Jack replied somewhat dubiously. The fish smelled delicious, and Jack was ravenous, despite his worry about the future. As his uncle passed him a plate, he said, why don't you set your next story here? Bring your friends into a setting like this through the veil. Lucas has a silver tent, and if Koshche is to be believed, he can conjure a whole barracks with a wave of his little finger. Vaz is very resourceful, and I'm sure between all of us, we can provide fitting quarters for the Lady Isabel and Rosamond. What you need at the moment, lad, is a little looking after and not to be alone. Let us give that to you. "'at least so that your mother doesn't have my guts for garters the next time I see her.' Jack laughed and agreed to his uncle's suggestion. He still felt he was a man without a story, but in that there was a tale to tell. Jack broached the idea of camping as the setting for a story to his friends, and both were delighted. Diarmid, Vasily, and Kosche embraced the challenges and set to on the details with almost military precision.' Diarmid asked Lucas for a temporary loan of the silver bucket charm. The lake was miraculously populated with red herring as well as rainbow trout for the duration of their holiday, and Lady Isabel was billeted with Rosamond in an updated version of the silver tent. Anansi's great-aunt managed to look fetching yet extremely capable in a collection of steampunk expedition togs, and she effortlessly wove all their hammocks, mosquito nets, and sleeping bags— out of strong silken stuff of the perfect gauge and weight for each intended use, Vassili brought an entire field kitchen in a backpack that unfolded so intricately, it made a Swiss Army knife look under-equipped. Diarmid's caravan securely housed their supplies. Jack, Lucas, and the old soldiers, as Kosche referred to himself, Vaza and the tinker, were housed in a great tent that looked something like a puffy sleeping animal private but connecting tents for sleeping projected off a central area big enough for lavish socializing. Eternity is too short for discomfort, Cauchier explained. Moot had to look after the archives, but stayed connected to the proceedings by several magical links so that Jack's story could be collected. The archivist allowed the three heroes, Dobrinya, Ilya, and Michelo, to go off on a short adventure as well with express instructions that they were not to intrude on the main party and not to stray too far. If Kostje had to go looking for them, Moot promised ominously, they'd be grounded until kingdom come. His uncle had been right, Jack thought. This escape was doing him the power of good. He felt as he had during summers with his mother, carefree and healthy, as if all the care and worry he had ever carried on his shoulders and his soul was gently being lifted or discarded, slipping away because he would not need it on the journey to come. When twilight fell, the company gathered to hear Jack's tale. There are over a hundred versions of this little tale throughout Ireland, he began. And indeed, it might exist all over the world. Ever since people, generous of will but sparing of imagination, have been asked to tell a story against a death of hospitality or in recognition of shared fellowship, and couldn't think of anything to say. The names and places change, but the tale basically runs thus. Once, there was a poor young man named Rory O'Donoghue. He was married and glad in his pretty young wife, though as yet they had no children. Probably a blessing since there were times for them that food was scarce enough without having to try and feed a houseful of little ones. Rory did whatever work he could find with a will to try and provide. In this season he cut and bundled reeds to sell. However plentiful, Reeds take a little time to grow, and Rory had soon exhausted his closest sources of supply, requiring him to go further and further afield. One day, he realized that the best reeds were to be had in a place no one ventured, a hilly stretch of woodland reputed to be a fairy mound. Cut but a single reed there, it was said, and the most beautiful music would fall upon your ears, just before it drove you mad. When she heard he was resolved to go cutting reeds in that enchanted place, his wife baked some fresh bread and packed him what she could for a lunch, pleading with him to take care. Rory set off for the fairy hill and saw the quality and number of the reeds growing there, enough for his purposes for a good long time. Perhaps reeds that grow near fairy mounds replenish themselves magically overnight, he wondered. Carefully, "'Rory cut a single reed and listened. "'The only music that met his ears "'was supplied by frogs and insects "'singing their serenades. "'Encouraged, he quickly cut, stacked, trimmed, and tied "'as many bundles as he could carry on his back. "'Just as he was preparing to lift these "'and settle the weight for the trek home, "'a great wind came up and picked Rory up bodily, "'depositing him some distance away "'from his previous location.' Night had fallen like a curtain. It was suddenly very dark, and Rory could barely see his hand in front of his face. He stumbled to his feet and looked around. In one direction he saw a light in the distance. A light often means a house, and a house means shelter, Rory thought to himself. He travelled toward the warm glow and was pleased to find a small, tidy cabin with candle and lamplight spilling from its windows. He knocked on the door and was greeted by a little old couple who ushered him inside to a chair by the hearth. No sooner had Rory sat down than a blanket was around his shoulders, a bowl of stew in his hands, and a drink at his elbow. The old couple were clearly not rich, but they placed every comfort of their house at his disposal. After he had refreshed himself, the old man took out a penny whistle and played a few airs, and the old woman sang a few of the old songs. She sang beautifully, with the voice of a young maiden, despite her bent back and crown of snowy hair. After this entertainment, they pressed Rory for a tale. It wasn't often a young, roving stranger crossed their threshold. Rory was dumbstruck. He didn't see himself as having a gift for stories, and truth be known, he couldn't exactly remember how he got there. "'If you can't tell a story, can you sing, then?' "'the old woman asked hopefully. "'I sound like an old crow,' Rory shook his head sadly. "'Can you play, then?' the old man prompted encouragingly. "'Whistle, fiddle, accordion, even spoons?' "'I have ten thumbs for music,' Rory shook his head. "'In that case,' the old man said, "'trying to shield his disappointment. "'Do you think you could go to the well and fetch the water?' "'That I can,' Rory cried happily.' "'Fairly jumping up and grabbing the bucket by the door, "'the old woman gave him a small lantern "'that could be shielded against the wind. "'The well was not far from the cabin, "'and the stars were out now along with the full moon, "'which helped light Rory's way. "'He came to the well and drew up some water, "'setting the full bucket down as he took up the lantern "'and looked around in every direction, "'trying to determine his way home from the unfamiliar landscape.' He felt badly that he had failed to entertain the old couple as thanks for their hospitality and didn't want to impose on them for a bed for the night. He needn't have worried, at least not about that. His lantern dimmed and with it the moon and stars. A violent wind picked Rory up and carried him through the air, depositing him far from the well and the cabin. He looked around dazedly and saw a bright light in the distance. Faintly illuminating a large house, feeling he had no other choice, he went towards it. It wasn't a wee cabin as Rory had found before, but a long house like a great hall. The many windows blazed with light. Rory knocked on the door, and it opened by itself. Inside, he saw a row of chairs along the wall on either side of the door, with men seated solemnly, all wearing their Sunday best. In front of Rory sat a beautiful young woman with dark red hair and bright green eyes like a cat. She was by turns imperious and terrible like a queen from the old tales and mischievous and fay. She was beguilingly beautiful, and although Rory's heart was not seduced away from his dear wife, he quickly got the measure of the situation. If all these big men were deferring to the woman's will... He sensed she had some power here, and he would do well to follow the same counsel. Her eyes flashed and danced, and slight as she was, she clearly had the floor. Before her was a long, low table, and on that stood an open coffin with a corpse. In a warm, musical voice, she said, "'Welcome, Rory O'Donohue. You've come just in time to do the honors at our wake.' "'What honours, mistress?' Rory asked haltingly. "'Well, life is short for poor mortals. "'We'll hold the wake before the funeral, and we need a fiddle player.' "'I can't play fiddle to save my life,' Rory stammered. "'That may prove too bad for you,' the young woman said with a brittle smile. "'But I know you to be the greatest fiddler Ireland has ever produced.' "'Suddenly,' Rory found a fiddle and a bow in his hands and he was playing like a true master for all he was worth. The rows of somberly dressed men joined the dance as if all had been waiting to show off their steps. The mysterious woman joined in, flying and twirling to the music. When all except the Mistress of Ceremonies had step-danced themselves into complete exhaustion, Rory stopped playing and the instrument vanished. I knew you had it in you, Rory O'Donoghue, but we have to get on with the rites and the funeral, so now we need a priest. Rory O'Donoghue, please begin the ceremony, she commanded. I have not the power and learning of a priest, Rory protested. That may prove too bad for you, the young woman avowed, for I know in fact that you are the holiest and most eloquent of Ireland's religious men. And before he could blink, Rory found himself arrayed in splendid vestments, leading the prayers in Latin and the sermon in the vernacular. His words brought tears to the eye of every mourner present, and he finished with blessings for the eternal repose of the deceased. "'I knew you could do it, Rory O'Donohue. Now we must make our way to the gravesite. But first we require the services of a skilled surgeon.' Thinking that she was going to command him to visit some shameful degradation upon the body, Rory objected. Oh, come now. The body is prepared and lies peacefully in the casket. What need can there be for a sawbones? Pallbearers, step forward, the young woman commanded. Four men rose and stepped forward. Three were as short as each other, while one was very tall. You see our problem, Rory O'Donohue. Rory O'Donohue, Our pallbearers are not all of a height, so a surgeon must take some of the length off the legs of the tallest one and reattach his feet. Then the coffin will not sway and rock and unevenly bump along in an unsightly and disrespectful manner, the young woman pronounced. Before Rory could suggest a shorter man be chosen as a replacement, a bone saw was in his hand and other tools of the surgeon's trade were lined up on the table, and his patient lay expectantly before him. Rory cut several inches off the man's legs below the knees and sewed his feet back on, grateful that he managed to know left from right and back from front in the operation. The newly shortened man smiled and got off the table as Rory's surgical accoutrements all disappeared. He was now of a height with his fellows and they picked up the coffin evenly and carried it decorously out the door. The party of mourners and the young woman followed in procession, with Rory close behind. No sooner had he come to the churchyard gate when a great wind once again picked him up blew him in all four directions, and dropped him near the well, his lantern still burning, and the full bucket of water undisturbed. Rory shouted for joy and took up the light in the water, heading straight for the cabin. He rushed in breathlessly and set the water inside near the door. The old woman took the lantern from his trembling hands. "'If you can spare a bed for the night,' he began, "'I think I have a story to tell.' Rory enraptured the old couple with the story of his night's exploits, and they made him up a bed with their finest feather beds and linens. He slept the sleep of the just. No strange dreams or memories intruded upon his rest. In the morning, he woke cold and stiff, his head pillowed on one of his bundles of reeds. He rubbed his eyes. The cabin, the well, and the old couple were gone as if they had never existed rory ran all the way home stopping only to sell his reeds to whoever would buy them he told his wife of his adventures and as a gift from the good people his hands remembered their talents no more cutting reeds for rory o'donohue the priesthood was out of course he was a happily married man but he lit candles and thanks for his safe return He found a patron, and he and his wife moved for a time to Dublin so that he could train as a doctor. Then they moved back to their village so that he could serve the people there and round about. He became a famous and well-loved physician, a father and grandfather who played fiddle on Sundays after church and always had a tale to tell. As to the tale of the man without a story himself, reeds take time to grow, but they do spread. Those on the fairy Mound spread over generations all over Ireland, not driving people mad, but whispering the tale like a rumour every time a reed was cut or broken. So in this way, names and places changed, and the tale we knew grew in variety and strength throughout the land. Everyone applauded. I guess we don't need to run the Decameron, Isabel, as it's either thee or me, Moot pressed the hot key. To the end, the archivist messaged, Queen of Clubs, For my last tale, I'll give you back your story, Jack. I'll tell of Thomas, the rhymer, Isabel promised. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Sunamic First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.